0: In Norcross, Georgia, behind a strip mall, a company, Ericsson, was performing renovations on a communication tower. They engaged a crane operator named A Crane Rental LLC. The crane was outfitted with a personnel platform designed to lift people up to the top of the communications tower. And it was rated to carry no more than two individuals. However, on this day, March 21st, 2019, three Workers boarded the personnel platform and were hoisted 105 feet into the air, and when the first employee attempted to tie off, he fell from the personnel platform 105 feet to the ground below and to his death. OSHA issued a citation against the crane operator, A. Crane Rental LC, alleging two violations of the Cranes and Derricks standard, and an administrative law judge dismissed the citations saying that A. Crane was not the controlling employer at the work site. The Review Commission, in its first order of the calendar year 2023, remanded the case back to the administrative law judge. We're going to explain why this case was remanded, what it means for the employer community, and what employers can do going forward in light of this case. I'm Manish Rath, and you're participating in the January 25, 2023 episode of the OSHA 33. Welcome to the OSHA 3030. I'm Manish Rath. I'm an attorney at the law firm Keller & Heckman right here in Washington, D.C. I'm fortunate because I'm joined today by my friend and my colleague, Taylor Johnson. Taylor, thank you for joining the OSHA 3030
1: today. It's a pleasure to be here, Manish, as always.
0: Well, Taylor, as you know, we have a great topic. This is the Secretary versus a Crane Rental LLC why don't we talk about what we're going to get into today and then we can uh, get into the the facts of the case, et cetera.
1: Yeah, certainly. Um, So we'll start just there with the facts of this case. Um, We'll then get into the multi-employer worksite doctrine, Um, you know, unpack that a little bit, talk about what that means um, and how it was applied in this case. We'll provide an overview of the Crane and Derrick standard, which was the the standard that the employer was cited under in this instance. Uh, We'll review the ALJ's decision, provide an analysis of the review commission's decision and their remand, and then, as always, we'll we'll end up with uh, you know what employers should do, you know, some practical tech takeaway action items um, for you to take uh, with you moving forward.
0: Yeah, that's right, Taylor. And for the last couple of uh, years, we've also added a new elements to the program. This is a webinar that's rebroadcast as a podcast on your favorite podcast uh, streaming app. But we also stay off the record, turn off all the recordings just for the live audience. Uh, so we'll, so stick around if you have any questions about this or any other black letter question of law relating to occupational safety and health, we'll be happy to to chat with the live attendees on the off-the-record portion at the end of the program. Okay, well, Taylor, I think that the facts of the incident are really critical in order to understand the application of the multi-employer worksite doctrine. To start with, in 2019, there were renovations to a upgrades to a, a cell tower uh, behind a strip mall in North Cross, Georgia, and Uh, A crane rental LLC was engaged to provide the job with a crane, a personnel basket, rigging, and to provide an operator for the crane.
1: Exactly right. And then Superior Broadband Towers was responsible for providing the workers who would then update the communications tower and actually be hoisted up in the crane.
0: It's an interesting arrangement, as is often the case. And Taylor, as you know, we do a lot of work with construction uh, employers and And there's many different employers coming on the work site. There's contractors and subcontractors and sub-subcontractors. In this case, it's an interesting arrangement. Ericsson was the general contractor, and Ericsson promptly uh, delegated through subcontract the project to a company called Future Technology. Future Technology engaged in turn to other subcontractors. One focused on the upgrade to the communications tower. So they were providing the staff for the job and Future Technology engaged Big Rents to provide the crane and the personnel basket and rigging system. Big Rents sub-sub-contracted the matter out to A Crane Rental, which is the cited party in our case. And I think that that arrangement is important to understand because there's there's really two at least two employers involved at this time of the incident. I want to go back. They are employees from Superior and employees from A Crane Rental.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And so just to... You know, break that down a little bit further. So Superiors, um, they had a foreman um, who was the worksite's lift director. And then A-Crane had an employee who was the actual operator of the crane. Um, so that in terms of, you know, who was in charge of the crane and who was moving the controls, that, that kind of breaks down the difference there between Superior and A-Crane.
0: Right. And so on March 21st, the operator, which is A-Crane Rental, uh, A-Crane Rental's employee, uh, hoisted the personnel basket with three superior employees up to the top of the tower. Remember that the personnel basket had a manufacturer's rating uh, for two people. And there was equipment as well as those three uh, superior employees. The personnel platform had had uh, gating around it. And to to disembark from it, employees had to first tie off when they arrived at the top of the tower, their destination where they were going to be performing work. Uh, the basket was 105 feet high at the very top of the tower when the first superior employee tried to tie off and fell approximately 105 feet. That resulted in a fatality. It's a very unfortunate set of facts upon which to try and premise an analysis of the work, uh, multi-employer worksite doctrine. Yeah,
1: certainly. And so the standard at play here is the Crane and Derrick standard. So just a little bit of background on that. It applies to power-operated equipment used in construction work that can hoist lower and horizontally move a suspended road. Some of the requirements that the standard dictates is, is assembly and disassembly, uh, hoisting personnel, inspections, um, things like training and equipment modifications. These are all you know aspects of the standard. You know that that you'll see. It, it, it focuses on sort of prevention prevention of four main hazards. Those are electrocution, being crushed by parts of equipment, struck by equipment loads, and then accidental falls.
0: Right, and part of the requirements, Taylor, the the standard requires calls for a initial meeting for the, the operator and the people who will be hoisted. And, and it does have this training element, as you say, and I think that, that there's no doubt that the operator was trained in safe operations right. of the specific piece of equipment he was operating. So this is interesting. The Cranes and Derricks signal requirements in the standard provide specific universal standards for specific signals to, to convey when an operator should stop when he must conduct or she must conduct an emergency stop hoisting raising a boom swinging the boom retracting the telescoping boom so there's all sorts of movements that each have their own unique signals that are prescribed in sort of a universal language for signal operators and operators of the crane the standard does provide this standardized uh, hand signal method and it does also allow for electronic communications. And it requires that an employer who uses electronic communications in lieu of uh, hand signals must use a dedicated channel for the purpose during the hoisting operations.
1: Right. And and one thing we wanted to point out here as well is uh, that a signal person must be provided when the direction in which the equipment is traveling is obstructed. Uh, one of the the facts in this case that we'll get into is that uh, in, in testifying uh, to the compliance and safety health officer, the operator of the crane actually says that at, at one point his view was obstructed of the personnel basket. And he ended up seeing them after they were sort of halfway hoisted in the air. But that would you know sort of trigger this um, you know need for a signal person to be provided.
0: Yeah, that's right, Taylor. The boom was so long that when it was lowered, the employees were behind a tree line. He said. And when they were elevated to a point above the tree line, he was able to see them. And he testified that that's the first time he noticed that there were three employees. Exactly. When he walked from the personnel basket back to the crane operator's chair, he, he would have lost sight of them and he, did, he wouldn't have known whether or not the limit of two people was being complied with until such time as he gained sight of them again. The employee, So the operator should be in constant line of sight with a hand signal, signal person And employees being hoisted must also remain in constant communication, direct communication with the signal staff person. And I think that those are really critical elements of the Cranes and Derrick standard as they apply to this case. However, it was interesting to me that 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 is not what a crane was cited for.
1: That's right. They were actually cited for two separate violations of the Cranes and Derrick standard. Um, The first was exceeding the maximum number of employees allowed on the platform. So as we discussed. That personnel platform was outfitted to only be able to hold two employees. In this instance, three were loaded on and hoisted in the air, and then not including the required employees in the pre lift meeting. This one's very pretty interesting. The the Superior's foreman held a lift meeting with an A crane employee, but not with the employees who would be hoisted. Um, And so if you look at the standard, it actually says um, that the employees to be hoisted need to be present in that pre lift meeting.
0: Yeah, there's a lot that's interesting to that, Taylor. First of all, it's the Superior foreman who convened the meeting. Right. Not the A-crane crane operator who's non-supervisorial. Everyone agreed that he had no supervisorial function over his own coworkers from A Crane, or over and certainly not over Superior's employees. However, Superior's foreman did have supervisorial responsibility over his own employees who went into the basket, and presumably over the employees of A-Crane, the operator, for example. So the superior foreman convenes the meeting and the a- crane operator shows up, yet the OSHA compliance officer cites a crane for not holding a meeting that included the employees who went up in the man basket. Okay, that's, that's interesting.
1: Yeah, and a great segue to sort of the, the OSHA's uh, you know, multi-employer worksite doctrine. And we'll get into sort of these four different types of employers, you know, at a multi-employer worksite, you know, and, and we, you know, creating employer versus controlling employer kind of becomes the distinction as, as we get into the ALJ's decision and then the, the eventual remand. But at these multi-employer worksites, you know, more than one employer can be citable for a condition that violates an OSHA standard. There's the multi-employer worksite uh, policy in place that OSHA has. It's sort of a two-step process. Um, You know, one, you determine, you know, which sort of box here that the employer falls into, creating, exposing, correcting, or controlling. And then step two is you sort of analyze whether or not the employer's actions were sufficient uh, to meet the obligations of that particular type of employer.
0: That's right. And this is in a compliance directive by OSHA. And and as you know, Taylor, we do a lot of work with construction firms, subcontractors who are specialists in electrical or uh, other contractors. And the it's it's in the construction sector, I think, that the multi-employer worksite doctrine comes up the most, by far, without a close second.
1: Right.
0: So, the, so OSHA, in its compliance directive, identified four different types of employers who, it asserts, could have liability for violation of an OSHA standard. An employer who creates a hazard, but then may leave, may not have uh, any supervisorial ability over... Other employers' employees, but they nevertheless, and may not have any contact either. They may have done a job and then left, and then the next day, and another employer's employee comes on site and is exposed to a hazard that is created by that creating employer. Then there's the exposing employer,
1: right? Um. So I think exposing employer, the best way to think about that is sort of the traditional. You know, you're an employer. Um, you you've exposed your employees. You know, to a hazard, um, and and either doing or, or failing to take a you know an action. right. So in the
0: example I gave, an employee, let's say an employer digs a trench and then leaves the next day. He has no association, that first employer. He's created the potential hazard and has no association or interaction with any other employer's employees. The next day, a new employer comes on the job site, sees, let's say, some kind of violative condition. Maybe it wasn't shored up properly. Recognizes it as such, but then permits his employees to go into a trench with that recognition that employer would be maybe an example of an exposing employer under OSHA's compliance directive. Right. Right.
1: And then next is a correcting employer. Um, so I believe that that would be, you know, an instance where an employer would sort of takes, if, if you, you know, embark upon these steps to correct, you know, a hazard at the work site that, that then there's certain, you know, standards that would come into play there in terms of.
0: Right. And yeah. even if an employee or doesn't correct a hazard That might be the employer who has the last chance to correct a hazard and the ability and the training to correct the hazard and fails to do so. And then finally, a controlling employer. A controlling employer has the ability to tell an employee of its own organization or of other organizations to cease work, to do things properly, to correct hazards, to correct mispractices. And that employer has some control, not just over the other employees, but a controlling employer can be thought of as an employer who has control over the environment. So they, they may be the general contractor would be a good example of a controlling employer. A general contractor may on some days have no employees on the work site, but has the ability to control, to control. other subcontractors or the premises itself, right. shut it down or to, to divert work to other areas until perspective or potential hazards has been corrected. And so, uh, again, even though they may not be an exposing employer, a correcting employer or a creating employer, their, their quality of having control over the worksite or over our other employers, employees might arguably, according to OSHA under the compliance directive, make them a controlling employer. So those are the four types. So so now this case comes up because you have two employees, I'm uh, sorry, two employers, employees at play here. The operator of the crane belongs to one employer and the people in the crane man basket belong to another employer.
1: Right. Yeah, and we thought it would be helpful just to kind of go through this uh, very sort uh, of circular definition of employer and employee. So, you know, an employer is is defined as a person engaged in, in business affecting commerce who has employees. So you think, okay, that's great. What's an employee? And then you find out that an employee is a, is an employee of an employer who is employed in a business in which. His employer uh, affects commerce. So, you know, you just continue to go round and round the you know, the circle there in terms of figuring out, you know, how an employer and employer defined.
0: Yeah, the first rule of uh, defining things well is to not use the same word being <laughs> defined in the definition. That's right. But uh, OSHA has done so not only to define employer, but also to define employee. So not helpful. The administrative law judge noted in his opinion that the definition of an employer and an employer were not helpful and that you had to apply the extant sort of background law of workplace law employment law and uh, and wage hour law and osha law have all visited this question each in their turn and so the judge realized that those were more helpful sources than the definition provided by osha certainly okay so let's talk about the creating employer the secretary asserted that a rental was a creating employer and what they said basically was that that this was the it doesn't matter whether a crane rental had control over the employees in the man basket, they they nevertheless would have created the hazard by hoisting the man basket. So a creating employer is an employer who creates a violative condition that's arguably citable, even if the only employees exposed belong to some other employer on the site.
1: That's right. So an employer who creates this you know hazardous condition is then obligated to protect not only its own employees, but also employees of other contractors who were exposed to the hazard. Um, so you, you could kind of see where the secretary is going with this, that, you know, a crane in this instance had an obligation to not only protect the a crane operator, but the superior employees that were loaded into the platform.
0: Right. And we gave the example of a trenchant company. In this case, sometimes there are subcontractors who do nothing but erect the boom on a crane and they leave. And, or or they oftentimes, companies that handle the transportation of heavy equipment like cranes and then they'll offload it and erect it and then leave and then the operator comes and operates the crane and if they've left uh, and have no employees on site but they nevertheless conducted the assembly then they arguably could be a creating employee her. another example so so the administrative law judge applied tested whether or not the secretary had established the four basic elements that the agency has to meet every time they allege a violation of a standard and they applied the same standard in this case with the same four elements. The first question is whether there's a standard, whether the standard applies to the given set of facts. And the second is whether or not the standard was violated, whether there's a mismatch between the requirements and the circumstances found by the compliance officer. And then the third one is whether any employees are exposed.
1: Right, and so with on this particular point, the ALJ finds that the secretary failed to meet this burden, essentially saying that the employees that were exposed here were superior employees uh, being hoisted in the platform and not a crane employees, and then therefore a crane as the employer, you know, should, should sort of they're citing the wrong uh, employer in, in the ALJ's opinion.
0: Right, and finally, the final element, and Taylor, as you know, this is extremely important in every OSHA citation for defense counsel to consider very carefully, is the question of whether or not the employer had any knowledge of the violative condition or of exposure by employees. That's two different questions of employer knowledge. So the review commission looked at the administrative law judge's decision.
1: That's right. And eventually what happens is that they issue a remand order. You know, one of the things they discuss is that the secretary never actually alleged that a crane was a controlling employer. Uh, In fact, they, they assert that a crane was a creating employer therefore, the ALJ sort of erred in analyzing these, this case under that controlling employer framework.
0: Right. The compliance officer testified that he viewed a crane as a creating employer when the trial was conducted. The secretary also made that same argument in its brief to the administrative law judge calling this an example of a creating employer. So then the administrative law judge dismisses the citation saying that the secretary has failed to meet the elements of showing that a crane was a controlling employer. When it goes to the review commission, the review commission says, well, why were you looking at it under the controlling employer standard? The secretary never argued that. They argued creating employer as the condition under which a crane should be cited. Interesting. So they, they disagreed with the administrative law judge and remanded it back to the ALJ so that the ALJ would reconsider the exact same facts by applying the creating employer standard against a crane. Right. And they also asked that when you do so, the review commission said, please look and carefully evaluate whether you think that the secretary has made its case as to employer knowledge. Right. As a creating employer.
1: And I think that's where one of the you know key facts that that I, I think it would envision the review commission is going to grapple with is the fact that the operator, you know, couldn't see. You know, so whether or not knowledge comes into play there, whether that's, you know, c- could be attributable to, you know, a crane in this instance, you know, sort of the lack of a of a flag, you know, flag man there and, and the signals that we kind of talked about earlier. So that'll be a key. Well, that's interesting.
0: That's right. There was, wasn't a, to, be, to be clear, a lack of a flag man, but a crane didn't supply the flag right. operator. That's,
1: yep.
0: Superior put three people in the basket and a fourth person was the flag operator. So now a crane is operating the crane from the operator's chair and following the signals of superior's employee. And there does seem to be a real knowledge problem for the secretary to establish knowledge by a crane. The operator simply doesn't have a line of sight. And even if he does have a line of sight, he's got to go back to his operator's chair at some point, from which vantage he doesn't have a line of sight. And there's no stopping Superior from overloading the crane at that command basket at that juncture. Right. And so so I think that that a crane arguably has a pretty good defense on, on the knowledge element. Yeah.
1: I would agree. And I,
0: and I think the review commission was kind of signaling that in its opinion.
1: Yeah. I, I would, thought so too. I would totally agree. Yeah.
0: Well, that's that's Secretary versus A Crane. We've got a few minutes left to wrap up by talking about the practical what it, what practically speaking does this mean for members of our OSHA 3030 community? Well, I think the first thing to say is just very specific and then we'll continue to to funnel out to the more generally applicable lessons to be drawn from this. The first applies to any kind of uh, operation of heavy equipment, crane companies in particular, operators of cranes and derricks at a multi-employer work site. Well, I think that they should supply their own spotter, their own flag man, their own radio man to communicate with the, the, the operator in the operator's chair. Yeah. I think that should be a two-man team that should be sort of inseparable by entity of employer. And I think that that'll help because the operator will know that he has permission by the signal man to cease operations if the basket's overloaded. Whereas I think that the the lines of authority are conflated or confusing for an operator if he's getting flag signals from some other employer's flagman. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. So the second takeaway that we wanted to touch on is that subcontractors should secure representations from co-located subcontractors. So you know, on that on that same worksite that they will themselves provide safety oversight um, for, for their respective tasks. So it's certainly a recommendation that we have.
0: Yeah, I think that's important. And you know, when you look at it from a crane's perspective, that would certainly fly in the face of what we were just talking about. A crane should have provided its own flag man, right. but it should have secured from Superior a representation that they were gonna manage the safety requirements of loading the man basket appropriately and safely. But conversely, it's important to also look at this through the other end of the lens. The folks from Superior should have secured representations from a crane that it was going to operate the crane safely inclusive of providing its own signal man or single person and uh as well to make sure that they know to police whether or not there was a sufficient number of people in the basket it's after all a crane's crane so they should have known what the maximum capacity is I, i would hope that there was appropriate signage on the man basket but to the extent that there may not have been, that it would have been the operator's duty to communicate that to superior's employees. That's a great point. So those kinds of representations, I think, are critical. And that, that should happen in the contracting process. And frankly, I believe with the construction firms that we've worked with, we've applied that in the in the in uh, the bid process as well. So at the very earliest stages. The next thing I'd say is general contractors should carefully vet the safety record of any subcontractors that is evaluating and that should happen in the bid process as yep. well as before engaging in contract. Absolutely. And there's a lot of ways to do that. You can look at OSHA citations. You can look at workers' comp records.
1: Right, right. Next is prohibit further subcontracting without review of new entities uh, to the worksite. So if you're one of these employers at a multi-employer worksite and you know, you're sort of adding you know, different employers you know, to the fray, make sure that you know, sort of take the time to review those new entities that come into the worksite before, you know, before proceeding.
0: Right, and I'm I'm assuming that happened here. This isn't a, a critique of the particular facts of this case because sure. you just don't know. But, but Best Rental, I think it was called, subcontracted out its duties to A. Crane. And ideally, and it may have happened, uh, that Erickson or the subcontractor that they engaged to provide oversight would have vetted A. Crane and would have had reserved to itself in the contract rights to reject a sub-subcontractor if they felt like this was not an operator that had a safety record or had demonstrated the capacity to perform the task safely, we have no reason to believe that that wasn't the case here. But it does raise the question of: Isn't this a practical takeaway item in the future? Absolutely. And then finally, Taylor.
1: Sure. So, if cited by OSHA, you know, for each element of a citation, examine the knowledge element as it applies to every sort of you know participant in a multi-employer worksite. You know, sort of take take each, each um, actor, you know, at the scene and then apply the knowledge prong to them, I think it'd be something that's, you know, very helpful in, in terms of figuring out, you know, what went wrong and, and how to move forward, you know, in terms of, you know, potentially contesting the citation. Yeah,
0: I think that's right. I mean, here we have, uh, if there were, if there was a controlling employer at stake here, then the question is, did they have knowledge that this activity was being conducted right. with three people in the uh, personnel basket? But it to say that we need to apply the knowledge elements to each and every element of the citation, I think requires that there be a more nuanced uh, and multiple step process for understanding where to apply the knowledge requirement. Mm -hmm. For example, did a crane have knowledge as to who was invited to the safety meeting that they did attend the pre-lift meeting? Did they have knowledge of who was going to be in the basket at the time they appeared at the meeting? And if they had knowledge that there was a safety meeting, but they didn't have knowledge of who was supposed to be in the basket. They could argue that the secretary had failed to meet the knowledge element because when I show up at the meeting, I assume that the other guy in the meeting is the one going up in the basket. And so, so that's just an example, but I can keep going on and on to each and every element. When he got into the operator's chair, did he have knowledge that there were three people in the basket at the time? And when the signal man signaled to hoist the man basket, did the operator have knowledge as to the contents of the basket? And did he believe that the signal operator was signaling that it was within limits? So every single part of, or subpart of an allegation requires that the employer had knowledge of it. And I think that that's a really critical exercise for employers who wish to contest a citation. Frankly, it's a critical exercise for employers who are still debating whether or not to contest mm-hmm. a citation because you, as, as you examine that question, you may find that you have a pretty good case Whereas you might have thought at the beginning that that it was a, a much simpler prospect of uh, analyzing your prospects for for uh, contesting the citation. So that's what employers should do, Taylor. I think that this is, frankly, one of the more practical cases that we selected in a while at the OSHA 3030. There's so many great cases we've picked in the past year, but this is definitely rises to the top.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, that's it for this month's OSHA 3030. Then the episode itself will be stored on our website, osha 3030 and all of our prior episodes have been stored on our website at osho 3030 So check them out. Many of them are still very relevant, very informative, even to this day. And we've been doing this for over 10 years. And even our oldest episodes are instructive in the field of occupational safety and health law. We, we're all available on LinkedIn. Make sure you link in with us if you haven't done so already. This episode will be republished as a podcast within one day. Please subscribe to it as a podcast episode so that every time it, uh, another episode is available, it just drops on your on your particular podcast app. And you can also find us on as well, uh, Twitter and as well on our website. We're widely available by email and by giving us a ring anytime. If you have a simple question as to a black letter law of occupational safety and health law, we love chatting about it. So stay in touch between now and the next episode. When's the next episode? Well, that's coming up at 1 p.m. Eastern, February 22, 2023. Always on a Wednesday, always at 1 p.m. Eastern. So we look forward to seeing you then. Uh, we have sister programs. If your organization is engaged in an activity that uh, is subjected to compliance requirements under Tosca or REACH or FIFRA, we have sister programs. Tosca and REACH uh, are currently scheduled for February 8th and February 14th, respectively, at 1 p.m. Eastern. And, and the FIFRA 3030, if you have any issues that you'd want discussed as a topic of the FIFRA 3030, uh, the next FIFRA 3030, contact either me or Taylor Johnson and let us know. Well, Taylor, thank you for yeah. being a part of this episode of the OSHA 3030. Absolutely. On behalf of Taylor Johnson, on behalf of the law firm Keller and Heckman here in Washington, D.C., and on my own behalf, thank you all for participating in this episode of the OSHA 3030. We look forward to seeing you again next month. And until then, stay safe.